Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality potency and consistency scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality visit lazarusnaturals.com today lazarus naturals committed to improving your life as well as the world around you not available in idaho iowa or south dakota hello this is let's talk about myths baby I'm Liv and I am back. Guys, I hope you're as excited about once a week episodes as I am. Honestly, I would have loved to have been doing this the entire time I've been doing this podcast, but it just has not been possible. But you've all been so magnificent lately and I've had such incredible support from you all via donations and Patreon subscriptions that I'm so happy to be able to bring you one episode per week. Sure, one is shorter than the other, but baby steps, am I right? And know that any additional donations or any new patrons, it will only make it easier for me to keep doing this. And I am so grateful for every single one of you. Today's episode comes from the incredible Greek tragedian that was Euripides. Seriously, he was fucking incredible. I mean, not only do I find it somewhat mind-blowing that a world so ancient invented a thing so amazingly wonderful and universal as tragedy and theater more generally, but this man was, I would argue, the king of it. There were only three Greek tragedy I can't ever say that word, tragedians whose work survives, which is sad enough in itself, but among them we've learned some incredible things. These guys are Sophocles, Aeschylus, and today's dude, Euripides. So many of their plays survive, which is a miracle I'm grateful for every day. They also overlapped quite a bit in their content, but had vastly different styles and preferences on what they focused on in each story, so you often get really different perspectives on any given myth. All three of these men wrote about the story of Agamemnon's return home from the Trojan War and everything that resulted in. Each man takes a different route in telling the story, and each has their own priorities, and guys, we're so close to that story. Personally, I find the work of Euripides to be the most visceral and violent and emotional of the three. He's my favorite, though Sophocles and Aeschylus are both incredible in their own respects. They also have badass names, which is something. I mean, Aeschylus. Honestly. I could talk about these guys forever, but let's get to the real reason we're here today. So, the Trojan War is finally over. 
finally. But the ramifications are wide-reaching. Today's story accounts for the closest hit by the end of this war, the women. What the fuck happened to the women? They weren't a part of the war itself, or the story of it at least, so most of them weren't killed in the battle. This is an easy additional plug for that book, Silence of the Girls, which is about basically what the women had to deal with, which are not mentioned at all in the Iliad. Seriously, it's good. Read it. And after the war, I would argue that they faced a far worse threat. Slavery and rape. Death is quick. That is not. Some of these women's fate I briefly told you about in the last episode. Their endings are a part of the Trojan War itself, but thanks to Euripides, they're not only relegated to a single line in the story. Those fates I alluded to, or straight up mentioned, are told in detail in this play. Honestly, I wish I hadn't mentioned those fates in the previous episode, but the way I need to prepare these episodes in between my regular full-time job means I can't always look ahead as much as I'd like, and sometimes I spoil an upcoming episode because I forgot that it would be included. This is one of those moments. But you know what? There's no way I'd avoid telling the story of the Trojan women, not least because I fucking love Euripides. So, here we are. This is episode 41, Hecuba, Cassandra, Andromache. Euripides' Trojan Women. The Trojan Women by Euripides opens on Poseidon, something quite foreign to all the stories we've covered so far. There are so few that feature Poseidon himself. But don't get too comfortable in the world of the sea god. He isn't here to stay. Poseidon arrives on the beaches of Troy to remark on what has just happened. The war that lasted for a decade has ended, and countless of the best of the Greeks and the Trojans have died. What will become the most famous war in the history of the Western world has been won and lost, and there's only a god here to comment on it. He looks around, taking in the damage, when Athena arrives. Athena is angry. Infuriated, she vents to her uncle Poseidon. All this time she's been on their side, supporting them, and ultimately having a hand in their defeat of the Trojans. And after all that, and everything she did for them, the Greeks have just made her very, very angry. Athena tells Poseidon how the Greeks offended her. Something has just transpired between the other Ajax, Ajax the Lesser, they call him, and Cassandra, the princess of Troy. As the city of Troy burns, Cassandra's praying at the feet of a statue of Athena, in her temple, when Ajax the Lesser finds her, and he rapes her there in Athena's temple, below a statue of Athena herself. And not a single Greek does anything to stop him, or to reprimand him, or to indicate to him that what he did was in any way wrong. Athena, deviating from her many previous reactions to this type of behavior, even those featuring Poseidon himself, blames Ajax the Lesser and the Greeks as a whole for what has just been done. Guys, she doesn't blame the woman. The Greeks condoned this rape by Ajax, and so in the minds of Athena and Poseidon, they're all to blame. They're all complicit. She tells Poseidon that she wants his help to punish the Greeks. But how, he asks, are they to punish these people who have just won this war so handily? Easy, she tells him. We'll make their way back home a tragedy. Storms and raging seas, lightning and hurricanes. Do whatever it is that can be done and make it hurt. Thus begins a story about women. A story about the treatment of women in wartime and even more generally. What is done to them. In what ways they are treated like property. Like inhuman objects for use and abuse by the men. 
This is a story of the atrocities of war and those that are most affected by the actions of it. Nearby to where these two Olympian gods have just discussed the horrific actions of the Greeks and how they might be punished by the gods, is Hecuba. Hecuba, queen of Troy, wife of Priam, mother of Paris and Hector, Cassandra and Polyxena. The queen who has just watched her family be killed and her city burn. She waits to hear what will happen to her remaining children and her daughter-in-law, Andromache. In true Greek dramatic fashion, Hecuba has a speech to give about what she's just witnessed. Her city burns and all the men in her family have been killed. And what for, she asks the audience. A woman? It was all for the so-called love of one woman? Was it worth it? Hecuba is joined by women, many women, of Troy, all desperately asking about their fates. They ask Hecuba, but they don't expect her to have answers. They'd ask anyone they saw, because they just don't know. All they know is that everything in their lives is burning, and all they can imagine is that they will be taken away by these maniacal Greeks to become slaves to these strange men from strange lands. They imagine the worst, taken to a far-off land, all alone, to be beaten and raped for the rest of their lives. A Greek herald arrives to speak with Hecuba and the Trojan women all gathered together. He's there to tell them their fates, which have already been decided, far away from where they stand together in fear. The Greek herald, his name is Talthibius, tells the women that their fates are the results of a draw. That's how it's determined which woman will be given to whom, which woman will be the property of which man. They drew lots. It's disgusting, but it's so intentional on the part of Euripides, highlighting the injustice of war by really drilling into how inhumane the treatment of the victims of the war is. These women have become property, far more so than in their regular lives when they were already the property of their husbands. Now they're the property of the men who killed their husbands, to be disposed of in whatever horrific way these men decide. But who was going where and with whom? Hecuba asked Talthibius. Most importantly, she asks of those she cares about most. Cassandra. Where is Cassandra to go and with whom? Hecuba begs of Talthibius. Cassandra, he tells her, will go to Agamemnon. Hecuba asks if she will serve Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife. She's hopeful for her daughter's fate. If she's only to serve the queen of Argos, then things will be much better for her. But no, Talthibius tells Hecuba, Cassandra is to become the sex slave of Agamemnon. Typically, this is referred to as a concubine, which, frankly, is a cop-out term. It completely diminishes the fate of a so-called concubine. She'll be raped and become a slave for Agamemnon so that he can use her whenever he wants. That's a far more accurate description. Hecuba learns this fate of her daughter and is horribly distraught. Cassandra is being forced into unthinkable horror. But not only that, as a priestess of Apollo, she was a virgin who had dedicated her life and her virginity to the god. This makes her fate far more horrific in the eyes of herself and her mother. After learning of the fate of one of her daughters, and such an awful fate, 
Hecuba is desperate to hear of the fate of her other daughter, Polyxena. Could it possibly be worse than what she's just been told about Cassandra? Polyxena, Talthibius explains, has been taken to watch Achilles' tomb. Watch? Hecuba repeats to this herald. What does that mean? Is it some Greek tradition she's not aware of? Her daughter is watching the tomb? Talthibius tells Hecuba not to worry, to consider her daughter happy. Red fucking flag. Hecuba understands immediately that something is very, very wrong with what she's just been told. What is he not saying? Hecuba is blunt. She asks Talthibius if her daughter is alive, and he tells her only that she is free from trouble. Knowing she won't get more than this, Hecuba turns to another woman she must know the fate of. Her daughter-in-law, Andromache, the wife of Hector, and mother of Hecuba's grandson, Astyanax, both of whom she hasn't seen since the city fell. What is the fate of them? Hecuba asks Talthibius. More horrific news. Andromache has been allotted to the son of Achilles, Neoptolemus. You'll remember him from the final episode of the war, where we learned that if you thought you knew of the most horrifyingly violent character in the war before that, you were wildly mistaken. Neoptolemus is far and away the worst of the Greeks, and he is getting Andromache. Hecuba, reeling from everything she's just learned, wanting desperately to see these women one last time, finally asks of her own fate. Where is she to go? To whom does she now belong? She will go to Ithaca, Telphibius tells her. She belongs to Odysseus, who, in this instance, I will absolutely not refer to as my main man, because this is not one of his finer moments. Hecuba knows of Odysseus, of how he lied to the Trojans, tricked them in every way he could. She calls out to the women around her that she is lost, that she is the worst fate of them all. Which is not really true. Odysseus is not perfect, and soon we will learn much more about him. But I would still argue that Andromache's got it tougher, but we'll get there. Moments later, Talthibius calls out to the other Greeks to bring out Cassandra, that they must hand her over to Agamemnon. Once he said this, he looks to the huts that surround them, where all the Trojan women have gathered. He sees a flickering light. And the Greeks fear that the women are lighting the huts on fire. That their plan may be to just burn everything to the ground. And I mean, I wouldn't blame them. But no, Hecuba tells Talthibius, the huts are not on fire. It's Cassandra in there, and she's mad. Cassandra emerges from the hut, dressed in her complete priestess attire. She has a wreath on her head and a glassy look in her eyes. She's holding a torch, the source of the flickering light. It's as if she doesn't see anyone. She's traumatized, and she's also become a bit crazy after her years of prophecy with none believed. Let's take a brief moment away from the fate of these Trojan women. Cassandra deserves to have her story told. She is, after all, one of the most famous female characters from Greek myths. We all know her name because it's come to represent seers in general. But even more so, the word Cassandra has become a noun based on this woman. Someone who prophesies doom and disaster. How did things turn out this way for Cassandra? 
She's a princess, a daughter of the great king of Troy, Priam, and the magnanimous queen Hecuba. She should have led a comfortable life, but she didn't. She didn't because she was loved by Apollo. Before she received her gift and her curse, she was a mere priestess of Apollo. She had chosen to dedicate her life to the god, even though she had all the privilege of being a princess. She certainly didn't need to choose that kind of life. As a priestess of the god of light and music and plague, she was noticed by him. Apollo fell in love with Cassandra, and in that devotion, he gifted her with prophecies. She would be able to see the future and therefore have an unimaginable gift. Foresight and the ability to change things based on that foresight? A gift for her and her family and really everyone around her. But as nice as that gift was, she didn't love Apollo back. She never had. He had simply imposed his love on her and chosen to gift her without ever knowing how she felt about him. I'm sure he made some assumptions about how she would feel. He's a god after all, and I'm sure he considered himself to be the perfect match for any woman he chose to notice. Cassandra, though, just didn't have those butterflies, and she refused the love of Apollo. This is when he cursed her. He cursed her because the gods are fickle and have incredibly unstable egos. One polite no thanks to love and they'll ruin your life forever. When Cassandra turned Apollo down, he cursed her so that the prophecies he had so recently gifted her would no longer be that, a gift. They would be an awful burden. She would know the future and would herself want to do everything in her power to prevent whatever tragedy she might see coming, but no one around her would believe her, and so she would be unable to do much. And so, after years and years of seeing tragedy in the future of those she loves with none to believe her, Cassandra is no longer herself. She's plagued by the visions, and they've driven her mad. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Cassandra emerges from the tent, torch in hand, and she speaks. She calls out to the god of marriage, Hymen. She's joyful, she's excited, she looks forward to her marriage to a king, a powerful man, Agamemnon. Happily, she calls out to her mother to dance with her, to celebrate. Hecuba's distraught, as are the women around them both. They hold on to Cassandra, trying to snap her out of this, and trying to keep her from running to the Greek camp. She's horribly mistaken, considering this a marriage, considering this something to celebrate. It's not what is happening. Of course, this is far more fateful than anyone realizes. Only Cassandra can imagine the true horror. Her fate is a whole other world of tragedy. In this case, she sees her own future. Cassandra sees that Agamemnon will bring her with him to the city of Argos, where he's king. He's been away from Argos for a decade, and Cassandra can see that it isn't a warm welcome that he will be returning to. She sees her future with Agamemnon, her future in Argos, their future with Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife, and with his children. She sees their future, and it's not good, as we'll learn very soon. But of course, Cassandra isn't only gifted with this foresight, she's cursed that this foresight will not be believed. So as much as she wants to warn Agamemnon even, let alone everyone she's with and her mother, everyone, no matter what she does, no one believes her. She tells of this fate in her own way. In a speech in her madness, she tells of this fate that she foresees. Aloud, she speaks almost to herself as she tells that she will be the death of Agamemnon, that she, in marrying him, brings him to his death and hers. Of course, no one understands that this is what she's saying. They hear the ramblings of a madwoman. Telthibius brushes all her words off, tells her not to be a bad omen for the Greeks. And finally, he brings her off stage to Agamemnon. With Cassandra removed to her fate, Hecuba is even more ruined than she was just moments ago. She falls to the ground and cries out about the fate of her city, her family, everything around her. It's a stunning speech, like most of this play. It's followed by the women around her, both girls and the older women, and the chorus of women who all have poignant and beautiful things to say about the fate of Troy and the madness and horror of war. It's not something I can easily describe here. It's the dialogue you really need to read, and you should, please. Once these women have had another moment to their grief, they see a woman approaching in a cart. It's Andromache, and in her arms is the baby Astyanax. Andromache and Hecuba talk of their fates and the fates of Hector and all the other Trojans lost to this war with the Greeks. They lament and they bond and they're equally angry with each other for everything that has happened. But finally, they turn their attention to Polyxena. Andromache knows of her fate the fate that Talthibius wouldn't disclose to Hecuba. She is dead, slaughtered, 
sacrificed at the tomb of Achilles to be his wife in the afterlife. Andromache calls her, quote, a gift to a corpse. She tells Hecuba that she found Polyxena dead on the tomb, that she covered her body and beat her breast in mourning. Andromache tells her this, but notes that Polyxena's lucky, that she is dead, and so gets to avoid the fate of Andromache and the other Trojan women. That Andromache herself wishes for her death in place of her fate now. She loved Hector, and now can't imagine being forced to be with another man that isn't the husband she's lost. And that that other man is Neoptolemus only makes her fate more horrific. She is leaving her home as it burns with the son of the man who killed her husband. Hecuba, though, can't face this. She's holding on to life and to hope. She tells Andromache not to think that way, that maybe in this new life, Astyanax will grow up and return to Troy to rebuild the city they've lost. That maybe Andromache will have more children that can do the same. Hecuba wants to believe that Troy can be returned to what it once was. That their lives aren't in ruin and nothing is in vain. That they have something, anything to hope for. With Hecuba's final hopeful word on the fate of Astyanax and of Troy itself, Talthybius returns. This time, he's hesitant to tell Andromache and Hecuba what he's there to say. He doesn't want it to be true, but he must tell Andromache that her child, Astyanax, will not be allowed to live. Odysseus, of all people, Odysseus! It's he who convinced the Greeks that Astyanax must be killed that a hero's son can't be permitted to grow up to adulthood, and that not only will he be killed, but that it will be done by throwing him off the walls of the city. Andromache says goodbye to her son, apologizing to him for what will happen and telling him how loved he was by her and by his heroic father. And then she turns her attention and her anger to Helen. Andromache curses Helen, saying that she is not the daughter of a god, but Greece's curse. With the last goodbye from Hecuba, the Greeks remove Astyanax to his death and Andromache to her fate, leaving Hecuba once again alone with the rest of the assembled Trojan women. With the removal of Andromache and Astyanax, Menelaus arrives to where the women are gathered. He announces that he's there seeking Helen, the woman he once called his wife. She's in one of the huts where the women are being kept, and he's there to pull her out to face the fate he's planned for her. After all of this, after ten years of fighting a war over her, he wants her dead. Hecuba hears this, and like Andromache, she's all for it. She tells Menelaus that he must, that he should absolutely kill Helen but that he must have it done without looking at her. That if he looks at her, he'll change his mind. He'll be reminded of his desire for her, and she won't be killed after all. Hecuba can't face the prospect of that. Helen emerges from one of the huts. The soldiers who are there with Menelaus, who had planned to remove her with force, won't touch her as she walks out. She's calm, unaffected. Without emotion, she speaks to Menelaus, asking if he's decided whether she will be allowed to live. Menelaus scoffs, 
Of course it's decided, he tells her. All the Greeks voted, and not a single one of them wants her living. But she asks if she can plead her case, defend herself. She's innocent, she tells him, and if she's allowed to speak, she'll prove it. Menelaus is hesitant, but in a bit of a departure from her most recent thoughts on the matter, Hecuba tells Menelaus that Helen must be heard, that everyone deserves to be able to plead their case before their execution. Hecuba emphasizes that she should absolutely still be killed, that what she did to Troy warrants that, but that she should be allowed to speak first. So, Helen does. Who started this? she asks. Pointing to Hecuba, she first and foremost labels the mother of Paris. And the father, too, she notes. It was Priam who decided Paris must live, even in the face of the prophecy that he would be what leads Troy to burn. It was Paris, Helen explains, that was called to judge between the goddesses. Paris, who chose Aphrodite, who had labeled Helen as the most beautiful. It was that label from Aphrodite that led Helen to be so sought after and to be married off to Menelaus. Then it was Paris who arrived on the shores of Sparta with the help of Aphrodite. It was Menelaus who sailed off to Crete, leaving Paris alone with Helen in Sparta. And why did I leave with Paris? she asks aloud. Aphrodite. Blame her, Helen says. It was she who caused the pair to steal off to Troy and away from Helen's own husband in Sparta. And what about when Paris died and she no longer had ties to Troy? Helen asks. She tried to return to the Greeks, she says. Just ask the witnesses, all the palace guards and the soldiers, every man in Troy who caught her trying to return to the Greeks after Paris's death. So many times she tried, Helen tells Menelaus. Helen speaks her case, but it doesn't get the response she might have been hoping for. Hecuba scoffs, claiming that Helen is full of vile lies. Why would the goddesses Hera and Athena fight over beauty, she asks. What does Hera need with it? Hecuba asks, does she think she could get a better husband than Zeus? Hecuba is dripping with irony as she continues her speech against what Helen has just claimed in her defense. And Aphrodite? You say it was Aphrodite who caused Paris to go to Sparta? No, Hecuba says. It was you, Helen, who fell in love with Paris, and you who believed you would be swimming in gold if you traveled with him to Troy. And when you got here... You made for yourself the most luxurious and excessive life. Hecuba recalls that when the Greeks would win against the Trojans, once this endless war had started in Helen's name, that Helen would praise Menelaus. But when Troy won, Menelaus was nothing. That to Helen, there was no right or wrong side in the war. She was on the side of whoever was winning in a given moment. And what of these escape attempts, Hecuba asks. She says that she herself had tried to help Helen back to the Greeks once Paris had died. Helen wasn't wanted there anymore, and Hecuba offered to sneak her past and back to the Greek ships. But, she says, Helen was so comfortable in her excesses that she didn't want to leave. No, Hecuba says, all of Helen's story is a lie. Once Hecuba has spoken, the women all turn to Menelaus, asking what he will do. Will he punish Helen for the grief she's caused to both sides? Yes, Menelaus tells them, and he turns to Helen, telling her to prepare for her death, that it's the least she deserves. 
I've never known how to feel about Helen. She's so... She has so little character and agency in the stories about her. It's near impossible to figure out the truth in the situation, or whatever the Greeks believed was the truth. Was Helen to blame? Certainly Paris was equally so, but it would be easy to believe that he kidnapped her against her will, though most of the myths don't actually suggest that. But then, did they suggest that Helen is the villain because of the old patriarchy that we're all so familiar with? The war was fought in her name, so isn't it easiest to blame the woman? And what of these Trojan women blaming her? Do we make it about gender? Are they blaming her because she was actually awful to live with and caused so much trouble during her time in Troy? Is it unrelated to her as a woman? Is it just a sh- is she just a shitty person? Or are they blaming her because of the ingrained sexism women are taught? Are they like the women who side with angry, destructive men because they're so indoctrinated into the patriarchy that they're unable to see their way out? Honestly, Helen is a mystery. I don't side with Hecuba here, and I don't side with Helen. I certainly don't side with Menelaus, because he's always been an asshole. There's nuance. There's things that aren't explained. I, personally, am undecided. But the story is tragic all the same, and the play is a beautiful examination on the machinations of those affected by war and tragedy. Where do they place their blame, and what do they want in return? Helen, faced with this response from Menelaus that she is indeed going to die, kneels in front of him and begs for her life, blaming the gods for everything. Hecuba begs Menelaus not to fall for her pleas, but Menelaus is done listening to her. He tells Hecuba that Helen will die when they return to Argus. He orders his soldiers to bring her to the ships. Finally, Talthybius returns, but now he holds the body of Astyanax, and as the Trojan women mourn the prince that's just been killed, Talthybius hands the baby to Hecuba. Talthybius tells Hecuba that there was sudden news that meant Neoptolemus had already sailed with Andromache, that she begged him to return Astyanax to Hecuba so that he could be laid to rest with his father's own shield, so that the precious shield of Hector never had to leave Troy. With an emotional speech and mourning from the surrounding Trojan women, they lay Astyanax to rest on his father's shield as they mourn for the baby and all of Troy. But the moment that's finished, Hecuba is being called for, Odysseus is going to set sail, and she now belongs to him. Before Hecuba is taken away, the women notice the fires of Troy are growing higher. The entire city is being engulfed in flames. Hecuba, then begins to wave, as if to someone in the distance. She calls out to her children, and the women have to tell her that her children are dead. As the city continues to burn, the flames rising higher and higher, the women talk of those they've lost, the men who've died with no one to bury them, the fall of the city they loved, the complete and utter destruction of Troy. Thank you all for listening. A fascinating note about this particular ancient Greek play by the wonderful, magnificent Euripides. Much like the Lysistrata that I covered a few months ago, this play was written during the Peloponnesian War. 
It's considered to be one of the first and still one of the best pieces of anti-war literature. Euripides uses the treatment of the women of Troy to comment on the actions of the Athenians during the war. Atrocities were committed, and the war was endless. It's not a coincidence that Euripides wrote about another mythological war that contained those same things, the same mistreatment of refugees, the same treatment of innocent people who were just caught up in it. Also, of course, the ancient Greeks considered the Trojan War to be very much not mythological. Here, Euripides is calling back to the horrors of that war, writing a play about some of the worst actions of the Greeks against the Trojans. Through this play that would have been performed before hundreds of people in Athens and elsewhere, he's making a strong statement against the ongoing war. It's really quite fascinating and beautiful, and I'd recommend giving it a read. That, and it's seriously almost all women in the play, all but a small handful of men, basically tell Phibius and Menelaus are the only ones who actually say words. And that is a beautiful, refreshing thing. Bonus, reading plays is so quick. And also not at all easy to make a coherent episode out of because the damn things are all dialogue. Dialogue that really should be required reading and that I can't repeat as it should be read. So, you know, just read the book. The source for this episode is, of course, Euripides' Trojan Women, but also Edith Hamilton's Mythology, Timeless Tales of Gods and Heroes. And actually, the edition of Euripides I have is translated by Edith Hamilton as well. It's actually a super cool edition because it's sort of a movie tie-in version for the movie that came out who knows how many decades ago, starring Catherine Hepburn, Vanessa Redgrave, and Genevieve Bujold. It includes an essay written by Hamilton called A Pacifist and Periclean Athens, which is a fascinating examination of what I just mentioned about this play, about it being one of the first pieces of anti-war literature. I would highly recommend you find this version and read it for the historical aspect of Euripides' story and his politics. God damn it, I love ancient Greece. I should also make clear, not all of this episode is from the play. The play itself is subtle and understated. I've added details and plot points that aren't explicitly told in the play through its dialogue, hence the use of Edith Hamilton's mythology anthology. Ooh, mythology anthology. Also, I'm working on a new page for my website that should be live soon. I'm creating a short chronological summary of the origins of the, and the Trojan War itself, including the events that will take place after it, like this one. I'll update it as the episodes are released, and it will serve as a way for you all to refer back if you wish, so that you can be reminded of everything I've covered over the past months. I'm also working on another newsletter, but with the holidays, my job is a hell of a lot busier and I prioritize the episodes you guys are listening to right now. You'll have me in your inbox sometime though, I promise. Thank you all for listening. I say that every time, but honestly, I'm so very thankful every time. The podcast has been growing so steadily for the past few months and I couldn't possibly be happier about it. I get so many beautiful messages from you all on all my platforms. I'm so sorry I can't respond to you all, but do know that I read them and I'm truly so thrilled every time. By having a platform like this, you inherently have people who assume you're special in some way. But I'm just a woman who had a lonely stretch in her life and needed a hobby. I've always loved Greek mythology and truly never thought I'd use my degree, but I had a period in my life where I just moved to a new city that I didn't like, I worked a job that I hated and was soul-sucking, and I developed a love for podcasts that made me feel connected to the hosts. On a whim, I bought a microphone and started this thing, and even now, I'm just a woman working her day job, do going about a regular life, and I have this thing that has connected me to so many incredible people and has given me the most amazing feeling. 
I love you all. Seriously, thank you. I'm Liv, and I fucking love this shit. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.